Welcome to another edition of Nonprofit Lowdown with Rhea Wong. I'm your host, as always, and today I'm here with my friend Elizabeth Green. She is the founder and CEO of Chalkbeat, which is a digital news source for education across the country. And we were talking most about how the work of Chalkbeat is more important now than ever before, especially in the face of this pandemic. So we're going to talk a little bit about her scaling up her organization. And then we can also talk a little bit about education because I know there are lots of folks who are education-minded. So welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm a listener of this podcast. Are you really? That's so fun. Well, Yes, I'm I hope so- somebody else is on a lovely morning run and just kind of soaking in Rio's wisdom. Um, that's how I listen. Oh, you're so sweet. No, it's the wisdom of the guests. I am just a facilitator. I am the Yoda, if you will. I've learned the value of asking good questions, for sure. Okay, so you and I have known each other for years, but for folks who are not aware of you, which, I mean, honestly, how could you not be? You're amazing. But tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to found Chalkbeat, which wasn't always Chalkbeat. It was Gotham Schools before. Yeah. Tell me about that. Sure. So I, somebody who... From the time I was 16 years old, knew I wanted to be not just a journalist, but a journalist covering education policy. And I found that out through a path that might have in another world led me to want to be a teacher. I definitely have had inclinations to practice education in different ways, but instead my path was a journalist. I went to a really diverse public high school in outside of DC in Maryland, where my own peer group and student body and school experience, plus the debates that were playing out around me about segregation and integration and achievement gaps in the language of the time really captivated my imagination and the tool that I decided was going to be my tool in the fight for education equity was journalism. I had an experience very early in working at a student newspaper of marching across my cafeteria somewhat trepidatiously to interview students who I had no classes in common with and whose life experiences were in some ways really similar to mine, but in some ways really, really different. And those encounters across racial lines, across class lines, across immigration status lines, transformed my understanding of my own privilege and my own responsibility to make change happen. And so I entered the workforce after college, fully intending to do the traditional journalism career path, which at the time looked something like I wanted to start my career at the Aniston Star in Alabama, which is a cool record of civil rights movement coverage. And I would cover education there. Then maybe I would get enough experience to move to a paper, larger paper, like the Newark Star Ledger in New Jersey. Maybe then I would be able to go to the Chicago Tribune. And that's kind of the path that was carved out. And then one day you get to retire at the Washington Post of the New York Times and eventually write a book or magazine stories, but the whole way through I wanted to learn about and cover education equity issues. As it turned out, when I graduated college in 2006, the economic landscape for news was starting to become deeply unsettled for reasons that I've come to know much more clearly in retrospect along with the rest of us. But at the time for me, what it looked like is, oh, the career path that I imagined following just is 
kind of disintegrating before my eyes. And if I really intend to do this work for mission reasons, I'm going to have to find some way to reimagine the business model to support the work because not only I will not be able to do it, but no one else will be able to do it. And so that began the path that I'm still on today. There was a lot of personal ups and downs and reluctance. It all sounds pretty neat in retrospect, but of course it's messy and happening. That's the high level. Yeah, we're going to get into this and on a separate podcast, you and I can talk about education reporting. Little known fact that you don't know about me probably is post-college, I also was on a journalism track and I was working for Mother Jones magazine and I was witnessing the collapse of the publication in the newspaper industry. And I was like, I have to make a hard pivot here because I'm going to make my fortune in nonprofit. (laughs) That was my smart move. We should talk about that separately. Turns out that that wasn't wrong. Journalism has to go nonprofit too. Yeah, totally. So let's start at the beginning because I'm guessing as a journalist, you didn't have much of a background in running a nonprofit. And today (laughs) you're running a $12 million multi-city nonprofit organization. So high, high level. Talk to me about the journey from being a journalist who wants to report on education to a CEO of a multi-million dollar nonprofit operating in eight different cities. Eight different cities. Well, I think it's kind of like for a teacher who reluctantly becomes a principal and then reluctantly becomes a district administrator and then reluctantly becomes a superintendent. And all along the way, you're like, I just miss teaching. I have that kind of dynamic as a practitioner who is now leading other practitioners and trying to carve out a path for them. I have been reluctant to step away from kind of the field and the work while also being at the same time, I think, totally falling in love with leadership and the challenges and creative directions that it opens up and channels. And so I think the first step for me was acceptance that I was doing this. Honestly, I was sort of doing, and I guess I still am a person who has many interests simultaneously, but it took me a while to fully accept this role and and that I was not a practitioner anymore. It's even hard for me to say that now because I still believe I'm a practitioner in, in reality. But the truth is that I spend my time in meetings, not in school board meetings. So... I'm just going to get some real talk here, which is that (laughs) founders, and I'll include myself in this, have generally a hard time scaling because exactly to your point, people start organizations because they're really good at the technical piece, right? And then as the organization grows, what is being asked of you is different than the thing that you fell in love with. And so as a founder, I'm wondering, how did you reconcile yourself to the fact that you don't get to be a writer anymore or a journalist? You're actually... A CEO. And two, how did you let go enough to allow other people to help you scale? Because I feel like that is the founder's real Mm -hmm. challenge is letting Mm -hmm. go of power Mm -hmm. and letting other people share the vision. Yeah. I still haven't let go of writing or the idea that I'm doing reporting. And it's almost... I'm sure partly that's just delusion that is allowing me to kind of go forward and some kind of identity issues, but also it's, I think, a deep philosophical belief that you cannot lead an organization effectively if you don't have a hands-on understanding in some way and that you can manufacture for yourself of what the on-the-ground circumstances are, the whole idea of proximity to problems. 
resonates deeply with me. And so even if it's every three years um, reporting out a story and every one year editing a story directly, I still value that experience so much as a way to connect with our mission more deeply and inform my leadership. I thought about the question that you gave me a heads up about the question about letting go. I recognize that that is a challenge for others and I am very open to the fact that I may not be able to fully see the extent to which it's a challenge for me, but I actually think for me, it's never been my issue. My issue is more staying focused because the thing that I like about reporting and being a practitioner is there's so many things that I can always respond to and I can do one really deep dive project, but I can also step back and say, well, this happened today, I need to respond right now. I like the constant creativity of reporting and learning, the constant learning of being a reporter. And so for me as a leader getting to, I feel the deep privilege of being in my role at the organization is that I never have to stay still. I can always bring somebody new in and say, you know what, I kind of mastered this, now you take it to the next level. And I'm gonna look at this other problem now that is facing us. And so the process of just increasingly pulling back and lifting up my head, turning to a new piece of the challenge and just developing myself has left me kind of ceaselessly energized, ceaselessly committed. And I love letting go. <laughs> I love letting go because it means taking something new on. But it's easy for me to say that I can let go because in my position, I have the privilege of still being responsible for everything. So if we bring somebody on who wants to go in a totally different direction than I think is right, I, I have the ultimate ability to nip that in the bud if I choose. Actually, I see the challenge of letting go is much harder for different roles in organizations. I think in my experience, at least the CEO is the easy one to let go because you're never fully letting go. Yeah, well, I, we should talk offline because I know many founders who get very into the weeds of micromanagement, which means that ultimately they can't grow because they're so busy micromanaging mm -hmm. the details of mm -hmm. everyone else's job. But let's talk a little bit about organizational development because I've become sort of a student of examining mm -hmm. and studying how organizations grow. And so mm -hmm. recently I was talking about this CEO in Japan named Mikitani who says that everything breaks at three and 10. So all the systems that you had when you were one person break when you're at three and they break again at 10 and then they mm. break again at 30. Mm. And so I'm wondering if that's something that you found and what did it look like when the systems broke down and how did you then recreate systems that worked? That's such a good question. I'm trying to think of a good moment that encapsulates this. I mean, we're now almost 70 people at Chalkbeat and we're distributed across place. And so I can't think of a year in which we didn't say, oops, some kind of big miscalculation and we definitely need to refine this. And I can't also think of a year when I don't look back and say, how did I not see that coming? I should have gotten further ahead of this. But I think that the ability to adapt is something that I try to instill in our whole team is a leadership quality that every single person at Chalkbeat needs to embody. And I often will say that I want our culture to be one in which there are no people sitting in their corner of the organization thinking, wow, this is all going wrong and not speaking up. Because I think if every 
part of the organization feels responsibility and ownership for our trajectory and our health, then we're the, going to be the best able to adapt. And so we certainly are not at 100% everyone speaking up when they see something, but I do see a lot of examples of our team taking leadership. And one of them, honestly, is that we just voluntarily recognized a union at Chalkbeat of our reporters, our newsroom workers. And I think that I see that step that our newsroom took as an exercise of leadership to say, in a distributed organization, we are the frontline workers of this organization. In so many ways, we're the ones who are in the field directly. And as we've grown, it's become challenging for us to have a clear seat at the table of to drive the organization forward in the way that we've set as our priority, our cultural priority, our desire at Chalkbeat that every single person is a leader. And so they concluded, we want to form a union that will give us a clear path for having that voice in the organization. And I was thrilled because I think that is a phase of our life cycle as an organization that I could never have engineered myself. I think I'm legally not allowed to encourage to do that. Actually, it's just not the way unions work. But sometimes I think the my inclination is to take so much responsibility. And I'm sure this is true of other founders and leaders. Like I need to be the one to figure out our phase development and to anticipate that we're going to hit this challenge and have to restructure and I need to get ahead of that one. In fact, actually, I think the bolder thing to do is to have the humility to say, it's got to be all of us together, collectively figuring out that problem and engaging in problem solving together to navigate through our organization's evolving needs. So I think that's so interesting. I mean, I've known you personally for a while. I've spoken to members of your team. They talk about what an extraordinary leader you are, which is obviously testament to the fact that you've been able to grow the organization. I guess what I'm wondering in this time of racial unrest and, and demonstrations against injustice, I'm wondering as a white leader operating in a social justice environment, in many ways covering public schools, which are overwhelmingly black and brown children and focusing on issues of inequity, what have you as a white leader had to do, think, evolve in uh, to meet the challenge of this moment? So such a great question. My journey through what it means to be a white leader of an organization that serves primarily communities of color and low-income communities, and I'm not from a low-income background either, has been one of watching other white leaders struggle through this and rise to the occasion or not in education nonprofits that I cover. Finding that fascinating, important through the kind of removed safe distance of a reporter's notebook. And this is kind of a parallel to my whole sort of leadership journey that I was telling you about. And then along the way realizing, oh shit, I am one of those people too. And we're not just passively sitting on the sideline telling the story. We are part of the story here. And the way that act and lead through every moment of every day is part of the story that we are also telling when we write about organizations that are primarily white-led but not serving white communities directly, in fact, serving communities of color and low-income communities. So I think that I was already before this year grappling with 
the transition from the safe distance of academic reportorial learning into a more personal learning and grappling inside our organization, which looks like I think our story has been very similar to many other white-led organizations. We started out saying, wow, we need more racial diversity on our team. This is a stunning gap that we absolutely need to fill to, okay, we've not gotten everywhere the whole way to racial diversity of our team and our board, but we've made serious strides. Now we have to grapple with, are we actually a welcoming and inclusive workplace? And do we have representation all the way up our leadership table? And the answer was no to both of those questions in nuanced ways. I feel fortunate that I have seen through the reporter's notebook I have seen white folks in those organizations gone through blockages of their own progress, right? Where the challenge reckoning with what to hold privilege and give it up has been so much that it creates organizational turmoil. And I am sad that that is what happened, but also grateful, I think, to have had the opportunity to learn and watch and sort of know what to look out for in my own behaviors and my own reactions and those of other members of our team to say, like, let's not do it that way at as many moments as possible, not every moment. I also, we had no Black members of our leadership team when a year ago, and we do today have one Black member of our leadership team, just to be super direct about it. And I think there is nothing that replaces the experience of living with diversity at every level of an organization, even in an insufficient amount as we have today. There's nothing that replaces looking a colleague in the eye as you make a decision that has a racial ramification implication. And I think it changes the way people work for so much better. It's such an obvious point, but I don't think anyone can tell a white leader the extent to which that will change her or him until you experience it. Yeah, I think it's certainly a challenge, but it seems to me that you've been able to navigate it with this incredible humility and this learning mind that I think you probably have gotten from your reporter's training. (laughs) Thank you. And I should say that the reason that I'm here doing this work is that when I was in high school, I walked across the ca- that cafeteria, across racial lines, across class lines, and the space of an interview, I think, is a really powerful space in which to build empathy on both sides of the notebook and to learn and connect. And so it was interviews that I did with Latina, Latino, and Black classmates of mine who actually I didn't have any classes with, but I ended up going in with them to their classes and watching their experiences and just speaking for hours and hours during school and after school and just learning about each other and seeing what we held in common and what we didn't. And it was one of my peers who was not, her parents had not gone to college and she believed our teachers saw her as less than, that they assumed she was going to be, as she said, a welfare mom and answer her questions when she raised her hand. But she said that she was dedicating her academic work and her future to making the situation different for girls like her and kids like her. And it was that encounter in particular in which she took responsibility 
for making change led me to want to take responsibility too. And we had very direct conversations about race in that very first conversation. And so it's been an anchor for me encountering what it means to be a white person with privilege and what is my role, what is her role, how do we work together has been a question and a challenge for me from the start, but it doesn't mean that I had anything like the tools to figure out what it looked like to do that with responsibility or for justice and power sharing. And I yeah. still don't think I have all of the tools. I just signed up for a white leaders co-learning group that I'm excited to work with other white folks and do the self-education that's required of all of us. Yeah, I think all of us are really trying to raise up and meet the moment as best we can. I and mean, I think certainly the last couple of months has been a real reckoning in many good and positive and necessary ways. So there are questions in coming fast and furious, uh, particularly around scale. So I'm going to ask Morna to unmute herself. Hey, Morna. Hi, Ria. Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks for sharing your experience. Um, really appreciate this conversation. One thing that jumped out at me was when you were talking about welcoming everyone's thoughts as your organization grew, sort of identifying the challenges you face and develop sort of a joint problem-solving mentality and culture. I love that idea, and I'm always trying to think about ways to actually put that into practice mm. within the organization. So could you describe mm. what kinds of structures or spaces mm. did you create in mm. order to build that continuous feedback? And then as your organization grew, how did you maintain that culture? Yeah, just talking about that experience, because I think it's always harder to capture everyone's feedback when there's a lot more people. Yes, that's such a good question. And I honestly would prefer to answer it with like five randomly selected members of the Chalkbeat team to fact check me and hold me accountable to what actually works. Um, that would be a really interesting format for, for like organizational development conversations, don't you think? Yeah, we'll explore that. We're open to anything here on Nonprofit Lowdown. <laughs> I've been thinking lately about moments when we have opened up well and it works well and moments when we attempt to open up, but it doesn't work. And I think that some of the basic facilitation truths of how one engages, for example, one's board or one's leadership team apply to anyone in the organization. Like if we don't give our team the right pre-work space and prompting questions and clarity of purpose, like we don't get the right feedback. And that's true whether we're engaging our board or again, our leadership team or newest members of our team at the entry level, any department. For example, we had this kind of amazing moment as a team where we invited every single person on our team to a brainstorm about our response to the murder of George Floyd. And I was the facilitator. And I think that sent a message that anyone from any role could participate. It wasn't a certain team's meeting that others were observing. It was everyone. And we were on Zoom and we had a Google Doc open and we had a clarity of task for every member of our team. We had like a short period of time in which to think through an idea that was in response to a pre-created initial brainstorm. So first we had like sustained silent time, right? To think, to write down. And then I called on people and asked them to share while doing live note-taking that everyone could see. And that was one of the most high engagement, high participation 
collective brainstorm activities we've ever done. And I think it was because of those just like block and tackle kind of how do you facilitate a good conversation moves, not because of really any like secret sauce. I also do hold the belief and I hope it comes through to our team that it's incumbent on me and every one who is in a position of authority at the organization to also be really verbalized often what our expectations are of every member of the team, that we do expect everyone to take leadership of their domain and responsibility for the whole organization and give specific opportunities to do so with as much clarity as possible. I think where we fall short is that it is hard, and this is probably behind your question, Morna, to imagine like the most specific asks of folks and the most specific vehicles. One more thought is that we have a new chief people officer at the organization and just the an early task exercise she did was going from team to team to have confidential open conversations about our culture. I think that I learned a lot from that exercise and activity that really sometimes half the job or more is showing up to a room and asking a question. Follow-up question to that, Elizabeth. So as you've scaled out to eight different locations, I mean, Morna, I think this might be sort of part of the question too, is how do you maintain culture as you grow literally in places throughout the country? Well, not perfectly. (laughs) Some of it is, I think, just when it was possible to do so, having as much of a physical meeting opportunity and cadence within the whole team. So an annual retreat, as well as within sub teams that operate across geographies. We're on a shoestring budget, so it's not the best case scenario that we're able to have, but there's just nothing replaces in person as we're all being so deeply reminded and profoundly reminded of right now, which is true in our experience. And then we have invested a lot culture over Zoom, especially in the pandemic. We have team rituals, team happy hours. One of the members of our team is amazing and volunteers herself to lead team workouts over Zoom for anyone who can come. Another leads meditation sessions over Zoom that anyone can attend. Our Slack channel is extremely active. We have deliberately facilitated So we create channels outside of work interest groups as well as inside of work interest groups like Fitness Pals is one of our channels. And in that we've done team fitness challenges that are really fun and encourage, unless you are smart enough not to be reminded of how few steps you take. We did a step challenge as a team that was really cool. We have like a foodies Slack channel and we do competitions like make even these cute awards for folks, babies channel. I think we now have a new sports fan channel. The foodies and the sports fan, I have to admit, I'm not an expert in because I am neither a foodie nor a sports fan, but I can tell you a lot about the Cute Babies channel. (laughs) That's great. Okay, we have a question coming in from Paola. Hi, thank you so much for this wonderful talk. I actually wanted to come in like more, coming from like a journalistic and educational perspective, I wanted to see how you feel about urban planning and how that's influenced education and contributed to intergenerational trauma. And I'm mainly so like referencing the continual poverty as a contributing factor in generational trauma, especially in areas such as Detroit and the Bronx. 
That's a really good question. I think the social sector and the public sector are siloed by topic area. And so too often, I think folks who work in, in education are not working closely enough with folks who work in housing or in health or in um, other areas of policy, the social welfare and safety net policy areas, food insecurity areas. All of these siloing problems also affect journalism and how we tell the story of our communities. We are traditionally arranged on beats that reproduce the kind of blind spots of the institutions we cover, unless we do something to counteract that. And so we've been thinking a lot about that. How do we tell the story of education, public education, without telling the story of housing? It's really almost impossible to do that, but it's all too often it is what we do because it's the easiest thing to do. So I think that it's impossible to tell the story of for example, social emotional learning and the push to address social emotional needs, even the push to train and support educators to practice teaching that is trauma informed. This is like an impossible conversation to have in the absence of understanding the nature of trauma itself and intergenerational trauma and in particular. And so I think of our task as journalists is to, as much as possible, find ways to break down these barriers through stories that center families and their experiences first and youth. It's not something that I think we can say mission accomplished, but certainly is part of our charge. That's a really nice lead into the question coming in from Sonia. Hi, it does really lend to my question, which as based upon, given what you mentioned earlier about your work on intentionally diversify the Chalkbeat staff, mm-hmm. how does this impact your reporting? Mm-hmm. Is Chalkbeat working on decentering whiteness in your storytelling? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think before I was saying the traditional path of, in particular, white-led, but I think it applies to so many organizations that are becoming more intentional about equity and inclusion work and diversity work is to first say, let's just invite more different people here, but not actually change anything as a result of that or question legacy practices. In journalism, many of the legacy traditions are absolutely imbued with and formed on a foundation of white supremacy. And one of these traditions is the notion of objectivity. Now, I am a strong proponent of fairness in reporting and not taking an advocacy stance. I believe there, as Walter Isaacson once said at a TFA gala that I'm sure Rhea and I attended together, we have more than enough preachers, but not enough storytellers. So I really believe that the journalist's job is to tell the truth. But the notion of objectivity in journalism is the presumption that there is a single way to tell the truth most objectively, that is a really very problematic notion that really has made the white male experience the objective experience and not acknowledged the tremendous bias that is the white gaze holds, right? And so in just language choices, everything from language choices to selecting stories, selecting sources, and then what the kind of exchange looks like in an encounter with a source, all of this has uh, potential for power to be misused, right? And for voices not to be shared authentically. 
And so we fully embrace the fact that we are rebuilding upon on a foundation of broken legacy in our industry. What we're fortunate for is that we are not alone by any stretch in embracing anti-racism and a commitment to dismantling white supremacy in journalism among journalists. And so we have a peer learning community that we tap into for support. A new, our virtual version of our retreat, just as one example, we were lucky enough to speak with the executive director of the Maynard Institute, which is a long-standing institution in journalism that began as an effort to diversify the profession and now has increasingly embraced a more aggressive stance of changing the profession as well as diversifying it. And so they have a toolkit and a training protocol that helps journalists not only welcome folks into our work, but actually change our practices as a result. So we've made changes to our style guides, but we need to do more of actually creating trainings for reporters. And we are doing that with Maynard to give tools that our journalists are craving for not just the writing of stories, but the practice of the work itself. So I certainly would say it's a work in progress. It's work that we're really dedicated to. It's an exciting moment for our profession because it is, I hope, a long lasting generational shift is happening. Whether you see it in the capitalization of being black or whether you see it in us doing audits of our stories, which we do behind the scenes to say, who did we feature in our first person section and who do we not feature? Or whether you see it in reframing the way we talk about race in our stories so that we don't dance around things, but just say them plainly as they are true. Those are, those are some of the ways that I think it shows up. Do you have other thoughts on? Um, thank you for your answer. I think that was really helpful for me. It was a question that came up recently with my team and we were doing a book club discussion on the podcast, uh, Nice White Parents. Yeah. And a lot of the feedback that we saw, like uh, reactions to it and Again, that even though it's titled Nice White Parents, so the focus is really centered on white parents' experience and their impact, there seem to be a lot of missed opportunities for engagement and, and talking to other school leaders of color, of more parents that weren't white, that were seem to be more a byproduct of the of, of white folks. So that was top of mind for me, but I really appreciate your answer. So thank you. Yeah, well... I'd love to build on that and just say that I'm really grateful to Hannah for Nice White Parents because I think naming whiteness in journalism has been too rare of a practice. I think often education reporters have a tradition of um, acting like the only folks who hold racial identities are non-white folks. And so I think one step that I'm really grateful to that podcast for doing is naming an elephant in the room of education reporting, which is that it's primarily practiced by white folks. And we are also participants in the story that we're telling. And especially those of us who are parents, I think there's like an undercurrent in that story of her journey. So I was really grateful to her for setting that standard. It's Nicole Hannah-Jones is not the only one of us education reporters who has a racial identity. I agree with you about the importance of always asking the question, whose voice and how is shaping this story and why? And that's a really interesting critique that I'm sure Hannah would love to engage in, honestly. I think we have time for one last question. So we're going to switch tacks a little bit and talk more about organizational development. So Adam, can I ask your question? 
Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Ria, for hosting us and Elizabeth for sharing your inspiring story, including the challenges and and what seem like realistic, achievable solutions. I have not yet met my entrepreneurial founder, Spark. So my focus has been joining teams, leading organizations, and working towards sustaining, scaling up the impact. So I'm looking for advice and processes that you and maybe others have to support founding leaders when they're involved. You talked a little bit earlier, Elizabeth, it sounded like you have uh, more than a willingness to let go in a healthy way. But when letting go become gets in the way uh, from founding leaders for an organization to sustain any tips along the way that you could share? Honestly, I really struggle with this question because I love to let go, um, but maybe too much, as I indicated before. I honestly think what I really think, like the real talk is it's hardest to let go when you're not okay with yourself. Do you agree? Drop it like it's hot. It's, <laughs> it, it's so based in insecurity and fear. But please we continue. Mo- we're moving into our therapy part of the session. I right mean, now, right? it's, okay, it's always about go. therapy here at Nonprofit Lowdown. Well, I think that's really true. I The book that most deeply moved me of the last several months was Kiese Lehman's book, Heavy, which is a memoir. And it's a memoir that started out as a, a memoir of being a Black man in America who struggles with weight and food, but became this like, just absolute like metaphor. I read his book to be a profound argument that America's wounds will never be healed until each individual American comes to peace with with themselves. Because whether it's white folks or black folks or brown folks or Asian folks, like we we're not ever going to give any power up until we're at peace with ourselves. And that's in the most profound levels. I think I really was very persuaded by his case. And I see that in my own experiences in the domains where I feel safe and trusted and trusting and a deep empathy and deep connection. I feel radically capable of giving up and letting go in the spaces where I do not feel safe and I do not feel respect and I do not feel dignity, that my dignity is acknowledged. I am very unwilling to let go and I have a lot of fear. And so I think it's really the question is, have we created the spaces for individuals to be brave and courageous in sharing power. You know, I'd love to follow up on that point, Elizabeth, because I think as a founder myself, the hard part about letting go was that being the executive director was so tied into my own identity of self and how I understood who Mm -hmm. I was as a person. And I wonder, we can muse about this, but maybe because your identity is so strongly that you're a journalist who also (laughs) happens to be a CEO, as opposed to like, I am a CEO first and foremost. I think you're right. I One of my mentors close with and has given me the privilege of knowing Frances Hesselbein. Do you guys know her story? Frances and the Girl Scouts. Love her. She's amazing. She's, I think, 104 years old and still goes to work every day. And she says of her leadership path, which by the way, plug for my husband's book, Range, he profiled 
Francis in his book, arranged by David Epstein. But through his reporting, I was able to even more deeply know her. She says, I just did whatever was needed at the time. That's what she says of her leadership. And she was every phase a reluctant leader. And I connect very strongly with that story. For me, I've always felt called to serve with like genuine reluctance because of my desire to rather be reporting. I'd always rather be reporting, but I see a need and I don't see any other way to meet the need than to be of service myself. And I think that I am very blessed to have had that specific way of leading is the one that I fell into. And every time I've started something new, like whether it's Chalkbeat or the American Journalism Project is my other venture, which is a venture philanthropy firm that is the first ever to invest in local news very much inspired by venture philanthropies and the education sector. In founding that, I, I really would have rather somebody else done it, but I sort of kept finding out that no one else was going to do it, and so it was going to be me. So every time that I step into leadership in that way, I, I do think, Rhea, that you're right, that it kind of frees me of some kind of identity prison <laughs> or something that I'm just like here to serve, and all that matters is the mission. And as soon as I can get out of the way, I'd love to. <laughs> Yeah. As you're wrapping up, I was thinking about the Rabbi Halal quote, if not me, then who? If not now, then when? So yeah. that is a beautiful note to end on. I want to encourage everybody to subscribe to Chalkbeat. It's free. It's awesome. I read it religiously. And then I'll also include links to Elizabeth's book and her husband's book. I didn't know that that was your husband's book. It's on my to-read list. Oh, I hope you love it. I hope you love it. I'm sure I will. I actually think I heard an interview with him and I was like, this sounds fascinating. But of course, <laughs> I have a stack of books I have to get to. So thank you so much, everyone. Elizabeth, thank you as always. So fun thank to hang. You. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and we'll talk to you everyone. soon. Take care. Thank you all.